Okay, uh, we are in a series called uh, A House of Acts, and we are making our way verse by verse through the book of Acts in the New Testament. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the book of Acts is just this incredible story of action. That's why it's called Acts. There's a lot of acts in the book of Acts. And um, it just basically chronicles uh, the story of the early church. It chronicles what, what, what was the church at the very beginning, and, and, and what kind of shape did it take on? What were the theological foundations of that church and, and all of that? So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 14. That's where we're going to be this evening. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. And if you just turn to the New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you get to the book of Acts. And uh, we got quite a bit of scripture to cover this evening, but it, it's really, as I spent this time over this week just uh, reading through this, this is just some really uh, powerful stuff. So um, Acts chapter 2, verse 14, let's read it, it says this. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now, pause for a moment. What the heck is going on? Because if you just came into church and that's the first verse we read, you're like, wait, I don't read drunk in the Bible? Yes, it's there. Um, what just took place is on the holiday of Pentecost, which is the holiday that Jews remember being given the Torah or being given the law, uh, they get a new law. Years and years later, after the Torah is given, they gather together in Jerusalem. This happens just right in the few verses before this. And as they're gathered together, it says that there's a, a violent wind that tears through the place. It would be like if the air conditioning kicked on a lot. And, and the, a wind just blew through the place, and then all of a sudden, fire comes down and just hovers over the heads of those who are gathered. And that it, it, the weirdness doesn't stop there. It gets even more weird. What then ends up happening is they start speaking in other languages. Some of you who are like new to Christianity or you're, you're questioning Christianity or interested in Christianity, you're like, oh, I've heard of this. That's speaking in tongues stuff. Yeah, so it's in the Bible. And basically what happens is these people start speaking in, in languages um, that are represented by the people who are there. So somebody's like, well, I'm from Asia, and that's the dialect that I speak. What? I thought you were from Jerusalem. And another person's like, well, I'm from Cappadocia. And that person, they're speaking Cappadocian. I, I thought I was in Jerusalem. And God, what he's doing is he's undoing at Babel. He, he um, actually uh, split humanity apart, so to speak, by giving them different languages. And at this point, the Holy Spirit comes and Babel is undone. And they begun, began to unite, not around building a monument to themselves, but actually making a name for God, making his fame known, like that song that we just sang. And, and what I want you to do, is, what I, I want you to see here is how Peter then, he, he says, look, at these guys, they're not drunk, but this is something else. And he begins to give us a biblical theology of the Holy Spirit in the following verses. It, it's just amazing. Look down at verse 16. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, so he's quoting the prophet Joel here, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons, your daughters, they're gonna prophesy. Your young men, they're gonna see visions. Your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone 
who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, the key ver- there's a lot of key verses in here that we could look at, but I-, I just was captured by this verse 21. And everyone, anyone there on earth who calls on the name of the Lord, they're going to be saved. The prophet Joel connected the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to prophecy, to dreaming dreams, to, to seeing visions, but he also connected the pouring out of the Holy Spirit to an open relationship to every human. When the Holy Spirit comes, yeah, there's going to be people who have visions, there's going to be people who see dreams, there's, there's going to be, you know, uh, all these crazy things are going to happen, but also, there's now an open connection between any human who calls on the name of the Lord, they can now have relationship. Now, remember, as we're reading the book of Acts, this is the first theology ever, this is like the first Christian theology ever done. There's been Jewish theology in the Old Testament. Well, this is the first time we really are seeing Christian theology done. Um, that nobody has synthesized the Old Testament passages and prophets and what is taking place with Jesus' life and beyond. This is like the first time. So Peter is doing theology on the fly. He's getting up. He's like, I'm the leader, I guess. I mean, Jesus said that, so okay. Um, Here's what's happening. And he's connecting for the first time Old Testament passages with what the Spirit is doing in the present. Presence. He's going, wow, this reminds me of Joel. And you know what Joel said? He said that when the Spirit comes, anybody who calls on God's name, they can get saved. So watch how he does this. It's almost like a quarterback, like seeing the defense and adjusting, calling an audible. He, he's doing that right here in verse 22. He says this, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said this about him. I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also rests secure. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. We actually read this earlier. It's from Psalm 16. And, and, and what's amazing is he's, he's, he's like, okay, so what you just saw with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, open highway, anybody can have connection with God, relationship with God. Well, guess this is what's also happening. He reaches back in his Jewish education and he pulls forward a passage from the Old Testament to explain what's going on. Watch what he says. Verse 29, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died, was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor his body to see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. We've seen it. (laughs) The tomb is empty. If you go to Israel today, nobody really knows where the tomb of Jesus was. 
Nobody really knows, is it the garden tomb? Is it this tomb over here? It could be this, you know. I was just watching, I was working out and on the news it was like, we maybe found the tomb of Jesus and it was like underneath a, uh, the stairs of a parking garage. Nobody knows where the tomb of Jesus was. How could the early church lose such a valuable monument? Unless it wasn't a monument. Unless he was alive and the tomb didn't matter. We were witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Contextually, this is one of the best arguments that Peter can give to Jews about Jesus being promised in the Old Testament. He's reaching back and he's going, you see this and you see that? They were prophesying about this guy, this Messiah, this Jesus. Verse 37, or verse 36, it says this. Uh, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You ever been cut to the heart before? You ever heard a word given, had that conversation, read the passage and just thought, whoa, that cuts deep. I mean, you got to imagine this for these Jews who were there at, at this moment. Jesus was literally just there. They ignored it and they missed him. I mean, that, that, that would be actually kind of hard for me to stomach. If, if, if somebody had come here and they, and they said to me, hey, while you were working on your car, Jesus was next door, but now he's gone, and he's not coming back for a long time. I'd be like, what? I missed it? Is there anything that we can do to become right with our Messiah after we treated him? Verse 38 says this. Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far, far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000, yes, 3,000 were added to their number that day. I just love the simplicity of this. It's where our church and where the capital C church gets the tradition of repentance, baptism, and the Holy Spirit coming on believers. That's it. Repent of your sin, change your mind about the kingdom, about the earth, about God, follow him, get baptized, identify yourself with Christ, go under the water, dead to the old life, out of the water, alive to the new life, and receive the Holy Spirit, his presence with you, animating your whole life. It's open to anyone. You, your children, and all who are far off. Now watch what happens to these 3,000. So these 3,000, they get changed by the gospel, and check out what happens next, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes 
and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the first church. This is the first church. And it's beautiful. When we just read that, was there something in you that was just like, I want to be a part of that church? I want to be a part of a group of people like that. As I read this this week, I thought, you know, you can almost see like the camera shot panning out as the sun sets over Jerusalem while they're on some rooftop eating and drinking at one big table, wine flowing, stories of Jesus being told, people being healed, wisdom being poured out. Don't you want that? You're not alone. Christians for centuries have romanticized this in their minds and longed for this simple form of Christianity. But there's a part of me that when I read this, and there's a part of many, I think, when they read this, where they go, really? People sharing everything? Really? People eating at other people's houses? Like, Every week, or in some cases of the New Testament, every day? Really? People submitting themselves to an apostolic leadership structure? I don't know. Power corrupts. I mean, maybe that worked back then. But with all of the emotional tension, the cultural hatred in our country today, is this even a reasonable expectation for church? Is this even reasonable? Maybe you read this and you go, this is just like a camp high, right? You ever been to like youth camp? <laughs> Some of you had the privilege of going to youth camp. And you had like a camp high. And you're like, man, that was awesome. My life is never going to be the same. And you come home and you're just like stoked for Jesus. Only to see that camp high kind of change a little bit over the next few weeks. And eventually you're looking back three weeks later and you're like, what was all of that? Maybe I was confused. Have you ever had like a deep season of uh, spiritual growth? And you're just like, I'm giving, like you're singing the songs that we're singing tonight and you're like, I mean it, everything I own, Lord, it's for you. But then like a few years go by and you're like, not everything. <laughs> like this, I want to hang on to that and I kind of have this dream that I don't really would prefer you not to touch and um, not everything. Maybe that's what's happening. I mean, um, you know, they did have like that Holy Spirit last night of camp. It was like pretty big, the fire, the wind, all of that. And maybe they're just enjoying one another's company right now, but just wait, just wait. It's gonna, you know, it's gonna kind of fade away. I want to put forth this evening that not only is this possible regardless of cultural circumstances, but that this example is actually the way to change cultural circumstances. Not only is this possible and very reasonable for those who are filled with the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. But this is the way in which God changes culture. This is the way in which God changes worlds. I want to show you just a few pieces of history from the church um, from about 200 AD to 300 AD after this moment. Um, So it's kind of enough time, it's been a few hundred years for some of this stuff to be tested. So um, the first up is this picture of some Roman graffiti. You guys ever seen that before? Anybody ever seen that, like legitimately? You seen that? A couple people? Awesome. 
Bible nerds, um, or Bible school. Um, so this is some old Roman graffiti that we think is probably from around 200 AD. And what it says right there is a man raising his hand to worship this man on a cross with a donkey head. And it says, in Greek, it says, Alexamos worships his God. It's the earliest inscription uh, or drawing or picture we have of Jesus on the cross. And what it was, was the, the backstory to it is that this gentleman was actually a part of the Roman guard and some of his buddies scratched this into a rock face in the city of Rome to make fun of him for worshiping somebody who was crucified. So think about this. The gospel, this is 200 years after the story we just read. The gospel had created a people who were able to endure cultural rejection and being made fun of. It's powerful stuff. Not only that, but the gospel also touched the wealthy. Not just the poor, but the wealthy in Rome. Um, this is a photo, next one, uh, that we think is from about um, uh, 300 A.D., Think about how good of condition that is in from being from 300 AD. And what it is, is it's a picture of a family. There was no father. There's just the mother and her um, two children. And this was actually set in this golden cross. The whole picture is actually of this cross. And it would have been like a mantelpiece or some kind of you know, decoration that would have gone in a home. And, and to, in order to have this piece of art, and in order to dress like they're dressed in this photo, um, they would have been incredibly wealthy. This is a very wealthy, well-to-do Roman family. And I just think about like what was their story that they were so passionate about Jesus 300 years after this moment that they would want their centerpiece in their home to be a cross where their, their lives, their faces, their likeness was at the center of the cross. Just powerful, powerful stuff. I, I was thinking about them and just looking into their eyes and thinking about this family. These are our brothers and our sisters. We will know these people someday. And thinking about them and just like living in their Italian villa, like putting their toys away, getting the pasta ready it, so that church could happen there that evening. But the gospel also created people who cared for the poor, people who were wealthy, but people who cared for the poor. Tertullian noted, sounds like a noodle, Tertullian noted that early Christians gave money to the church and that the church didn't spend that money like pagan temples did on drinking parties and on food. Instead, they chose to support and bury poor people to supply the wants of boys and girls destitute of means and parents and of old persons confined to the house. So they used their money differently. They actually were doing the same thing that we just read about. It's like, oh, we have money, let's put it in a pot and let's actually figure out how we can bless the people around us. Not only this, but they also cared for the poor who were most susceptible to sickness and disease in overcrowded cities. Um, the second great epidemic of the ancient world happened in 260, and Dionysius, oh man, I tried, I practiced these today. Dionysius, there he is, Dionysius, he wrote this. Christians were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner, a number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen. What had happened was when disease struck the city, Christians ran into the city. This was in contrast to how the pagans treated those in the cities. They, pu they pushed the sufferers away 
and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead, and treated unburied corpses as dirt, thereby hoping to avoid the contagion. The Christians, because of, uh, because of the church, because of the gospel, said, I'm running towards the pain, towards the hurt, towards the sickness, while the pagans ran away from it. Finally, this gospel that we just read about, that Peter just outlined, it also developed people who could face martyrdom. The famous um, martyrdom of Peter where he's crucified upside down, history tells us that he, while he's upside down being crucified, spoke at length to the onlookers of the great power of putting one's faith in Christ. Like you think about just that image. When I think about the church and I think about the early church and the power of the gospel, I'm reminded of this passage. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. You see, we tonight, this is not just a random meeting or a good idea, we belong to a family who fixed their eyes on Jesus and formed a lifestyle where heaven coming was the result. What we see in verse 42 through 47 in the second chapter of Acts is we see a family who had a liturgy. We see a family who had, a, had created a life rhythm because of the gospel of Jesus in the first century. We see a family with a liturgy. Jesus didn't establish a religion. Do you guys understand that? He didn't come to establish Christianity. Um, if that was his aim, he would have spoken of God, not of a father. But remember, when Jesus teaches us how to pray, he teaches us the very first line is, our Father. In fact, I'm reading through the Gospel of John right now, and one of the reasons why the Pharisees want to kill him is because he's having people say, our Father, and he's talking to God as though he is their Father. They're used to religion, not a relationship. Galatians 4.6 says this, You are his sons and daughters. God sent the Spirit of his Son, Jesus, into your hearts, It's the spirit that calls out, Abba, Father. So we shouldn't be surprised when we read this, when we've read this whole chapter, chapter two of the book of Acts, that when the Holy Spirit comes on a group of people, that they start acting like family. That shouldn't surprise us. Now, this family has a rhythm or a liturgy. They have a way in which they do life. Now, what is a liturgy? Maybe that word is new to you. Here's what a liturgy is. It's a form according to which Public religious worship, especially Christian worship, is conducted. So think about this. A liturgy is a form. And remember what we read last week. The Holy Spirit, he builds forms so that he can fill forms. The Holy Spirit builds forms so that he can fill forms. What is, so, so what's going on here? Well, they have developed a form of doing life, a, a rhythm of doing life, so that the Holy Spirit can fill that rhythm of doing life. What is their liturgy? It's eating together. It's generosity. It's listening to teachings. It's, it's, it's fighting for unity together. Now, all of us who are here this evening, we actually have our own liturgies that we live every day that are shaping us into someone. Our morning routines, they set the course for that day whether we're gonna be productive or unproductive or you know, tired or, or whatever. The time that we go to bed is going to determine the quality of our rest and, and the kind of energy output we have the next day. What we eat will certainly shape us into people, right? 
The media that we focus on is going to form us into a person. It's going to give us a worldview. Our search results on Google would probably give you a clue as to the person that you're being formed into. If you want to know, like, I, I, you guys know that YouTube has, like, an algorithm to, like, give you videos that they think that you'll watch. I just look at that, if I've, I just look at the right-hand bar. That algorithm, it almost knows what it's forming me into more than I know what I'm getting formed into. By the, what am I consuming? And make no mistake, what we practice spiritually is shaping us into a person. How you treat this gathering. Is this just a service that you come to? We don't, you notice, we don't call this a service. It's called a gathering. I'm not here to like give you a service. I'm here to have you encounter God. How do you, how do you view this time? What are you here for? Is this just like, yeah, we come every now and then. Like, like we go to church sometimes. Sometimes we don't go to church. Is this like a time where you're like, yeah, I'm okay with the worship. That's fine. But once you start talking, I'm like zoning out. Like how do you treat this? Because it's going to, for better or for worse, it's going to form you into someone what do we do before work with the scriptures? When we wake up in the morning, what do you do with the scriptures? It's gonna form you into somebody, whether, you're, whether you spend time getting sharpened by God's word or not. Um, if or when we pray, that's gonna form you into someone. Now, there's so much to be said on this topic. We could have a whole series about our own personal liturgies and what the scripture calls us to. But I want to focus on the heart behind a liturgy this evening. What, why even have a rhythm like this? Why, why have that? Why were Christians 300 years later known for the same things that we're reading about 300 years before? Why have a rhythm? Why have a liturgy? Well, I, I would put this forth to you tonight. These believers, they didn't have a liturgy that was based on fear, like, hey, you better have a, have a meal every week with other believers or else Jesus isn't gonna love you anymore. It, it, it was based in the gospel actually working in their lives. It's right here in the text. Just follow the text along. It's gospel proclamation from Peter, baptism, Holy Spirit, liturgy. There's an order here, and we go astray when we get it backwards. It's very easy for us, um, I, think, I, I, I don't know how much like, research has been done on this, but I really think that humans are just naturally religious beings. We just so desperately want to do things in order to know that we're okay, to know that we're good, to know that we have worth or have value. And it's so easy that when we come to a grace message like the one that Jesus gives to us, it's very easy for our liturgies, our own practices, to become based in, in fear and to become religious. And the danger is that our liturgies, the things that we do, our practices, they come from a good place. Some, um, in an effort to get this Acts chapter 2 lifestyle, have mimicked the principles of the early church in order to see the results of the early church. If I want to see the results of the early church, I just got to do what the early church did, right? This is a mistake. Eating together, being generous, listening to sermons doesn't produce the kingdom. It is the Holy Spirit coming that produces those things in your life and the kingdom. I'm like, just like with a scalpel tonight, like there's a fine line here. There's a difference between religious discipline and what we see here, family discipleship. Next slide. When you are living up to someone else's convictions, that is called religion. When you're living up to his voice, that is called discipline in relationship. So sometimes we're like, no, I'm doing the right thing. Like, I'm reading the scriptures. I'm coming to church. I'm giving my tithe. I'm hanging out with Christians. But, but why are you doing that? 
Because if you're doing that to live up to what somebody told you, even me, like, don't live up to what I told you to do. Like, our whole vision for our church is like, go to the Lord, find out what he would have you do. Because it's, what is it? Gospel proclamation, I believe that. Holy, baptism, Holy Spirit comes upon me, then. What is the rhythm of life, God, that you would have us live into? There's a difference. See, two people could be doing the same thing. Prayer, intercession, Bible reading, eating together, generosity, etc. But the two could be doing them for completely different reasons. The, the, the first person could be thinking while they're doing it, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> I, I don't even want to know what will happen to me if I don't do these things. Look, I, I feel guilty for my lack of obedience to God, so my tithe makes me feel better. Like, surely I'm good. I give 10% to the church. I make sure that, God, I make sure that I have a good, a good meal with people from the church at least once a week because that's what a good Christian does. I, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, right? I'm good. But the other person could be doing all of those same things, but their reasons are this. In response to your generosity, Jesus, I'm not afraid of having a lack of money in my life, so here's my money. I'll be generous. I'm not afraid of being stressed out by this person in my life. So yeah, I'm going to their house this evening. I'm not afraid of what people think. So yeah, I'm gonna be shaped by the word of God and nothing else. Do you see the difference? Every religion says this. Repent of your wrongdoing. Even Christianity says that. Hey, you need to repent of your wrongdoing. But Christianity is the only religion with a leader who also says you must repent of your right doing. Repent of your wrongdoing, but you also have to repent of your right doing. How do I know that this early church had a liturgy that wasn't based in fear? Because it was in response to grace. It was in response to the gospel. The core of the gospel is this. You need it. You need it. You can't earn it. You can't earn the explosion of kingdom in your life by reading your Bible a bunch or going to church a bunch or praying a bunch or giving your money away. You can't earn it. It's something you receive just like you received his love. The grace of God says two things. The first thing that the grace of God says is you need grace. Even what Peter says, you killed Jesus. You killed Jesus. He didn't need to go to the cross if it wasn't for you. <laughs> you aren't any better than anyone else. You share an equal role in the vandalism of God's world. And yet, here it is, grace for you. You need it, and here it is for free. Here is a river of righteousness mighty enough to cleanse you. Here's a father good enough to comfort you regardless of your sin. Here's a spirit powerful enough to use you. The key is, I gotta repent of what I've done wrong, but I also have to repent of doing things right, building liturgies in my life in order to prove that I'm enough for you. You've already said I'm enough. You were the one who first loved me, not the other way around. When you approach liturgy and family rhythm like we're reading in this passage, that way, then you can say, I'm not being generous to show that I am a child of God, I'm being generous because I am a child of God. I'm not eating with fellow believers because I want to be in, I'm in because of what Jesus did, and I'm just like my father, I eat with people. 
I'm not listening to teaching and seeking out God's voice because I want to be good. I am good. I've been given his mind, and I'm interested in using that. Do you see the difference? This is radical. Many people do gospel activities for anti-gospel reasons. They do. To get identity and love and righteousness rather than as an expression from being righteous, having an identity and the love of God in your possession. It's very simple. Discipline without identity being rooted in Christ is religion. Discipline, doing the right things, without your identity being rooted in love is religion. Liturgy or a life rhythm, discipline, based in the gospel, like we see in this passage right before us, is called life in the kingdom. So a question for all of us this evening. If our lives, if we look at this passage and our lives do not look like those in this passage, those who believed the gospel, the question for each and every one of us tonight is, have I really believed the gospel? Have I really believed the gospel? See, belief precedes action. It's right here in the text. Belief in the gospel preceded their action. Each one of these marks that we see, each one of these liturgies that they have in their family rhythm, the first church's rhythm, is radical because it carries with it a belief that is contrary to a cultural norm down throughout history. Here, here were their beliefs. They were devoted to teaching. The belief is this. Wisdom, there's wisdom to be gained. I don't know it all. There's a lifestyle to be learned. Jesus, teach me. There's a culture to be inherited. I need the kingdom. Rather than the common cultural belief, I'm my own teacher. I'm my own master. I'll choose. Radical belief. There's a belief about the breaking of bread. Eucharist. This physical sign of God's intention spiritually. My life is to be in service like Jesus rather than to be lived for my own pleasure. There's a belief behind the liturgy. Prayer. They were praying together. Prayer moves the hand of God. He's gonna respond when we pray rather than trying to force something with my own strength. No, 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 we'll pray. There's a belief behind the liturgy. Signs and wonders. God has actually given us power because we've made him king, and now we have the ability to do what he did, rather than, I'm helpless, I'm not sure I'm ever gonna see anything change around me. There's a belief behind the liturgy. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. There's unity of the spirit. We wanna maintain that unity of the spirit by making Jesus the main thing, rather than petty arguments. There's a belief behind the liturgy. They sold property and possessions to give to those who were in need. Radical generosity. Completely radical. Instead of having a poverty mentality that keeps people believing that God isn't enough to give them what, what, what they need, they said, no, we have seen a gospel. We have seen Jesus come and for, for love us in such a way. He became poor that we could become wealthy. So here, here, take it. And the Lord added to their number those that were being saved. They're speaking the gospel and inviting people to life. Rather than keeping quiet, ashamed of what people may think or say, there's a belief behind the liturgy. These are not random beliefs. They're linked to the good news of Jesus. Jesus was taught by a father. What does he say? I only do what I see the father doing. Jesus dedicated himself to prayer for the whole world. Join me, stay awake, let's pray. Jesus did signs and wonders and invited us to do the same. 
by breathing on us and giving us his Holy Spirit. Jesus gave up the riches of heaven to rescue us so that we could be wealthy in him. Jesus believed in evangelism. He came to us. Jesus loved us first so that we could be filled with an identity of love, not, try to go, not have to go out and work for an identity of love. So, if my life doesn't include these beliefs and this liturgy, the answer is not, I just need to do more and try harder and I'm gonna devote myself to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of the bread. I'm gonna be filled in awe. I'm gonna have everything in common. I'm gonna sell all my property. I'm just gonna do it. No. The answer is, have I really understood the love that you have shown me, Father? Do I understand the gospel? Do you understand the gospel? To end. People, the people of Newburgh, the people outside of these um, doors are longing for gospel people. They're longing for you. How many of you guys realize how lucky you are? You are sitting in a room among a group of people who believe what you believe, who will increase your faith whenever it's lacking, who will cover you financially when you need it, come visit you in the hospital. You just heard we're trying to organize this in our church as a response to the good news of Jesus and who will be patient with you throughout all of life's drama. People are aching for that. Could there be a family for me? I just had this thought this week. People don't, don't join gyms to get fit. They join gyms because they're looking for family. Could there be a group of people where I belong? I work at a brewery in Dundee. People, I promise you, people are not coming to that brewery just for the beer. They're coming because they're lonely. Could there be a place where everybody knows your name? Could there be a place where I belong? Have you ever wanted something so bad, but you couldn't have it? And so in order to cope, you made it something negative in your mind in order to trick yourself into believing that you actually don't want it? that it's maybe something that could be harmful for you or bad, or I don't want to be like those people who have that. We live in a culture where people are so wounded by the lack of fathers and mothers that they have begun to work against family and put, it, put in place governmental structure where families once led and were established, all out of a place of woundedness. Newburgh may have a lot of churches but there are a lot more people who are lonely, morally conflicted, trying to escape a fundamentalist past. People who have ambiguous worldviews with nothing tangibly deep in their life. People who are cynical about faith. People who are questioning. And do you know what all of those people have in common? They are longing for family. They are longing for this. We have an opportunity as a church to be the extension of the family of God here and now. Do you want it? <laughs> Somebody wants it. <laughs> we have the opportunity to be the extension of God's family here and now. Do you want it? Okay, I'm gonna try over here. Um, <laughs> we have the extension, we have the opportunity to be the extension of God's family here and now. Do you want it? Yes. Do you guys want it? 
I want it. I want to see people placed into family. I want to see us. I, look, I, I'm, very, I'm well aware. We say that this is family, and you're like, maybe if we just say it enough, it'll feel like it. I know that there's a lot of people in this room, and there's probably more people in this room than anybody's ever going to meet and have like meaningful conversation with. But there are people in this room who you may end up doing life with for the, for, for the rest of your life. There are people in this room who God has placed beside you so that they could become family to you. Do you want it? There are people in this room who God is actually inviting you to create a liturgy with and say, maybe we should be meeting once a week. Maybe we should consider all that God has given us and think about how we could be generous to those around us. So two questions as we end tonight. Have you believed the gospel? If you don't believe the gospel, if you don't believe or you haven't really gazed into the love that Jesus has for you, you will always work for an identity. You will always work for an identity and never from one. So our prayer is this, God, help me to understand the love that you have for me and move me for the people around me. You know how many times I pray this? God, I don't love the people around me. I don't. God, give me your love that I may have an overflow of love to give to the people around me. It is your will, Lord. First question, have you believed the gospel? Second, if you have, and I know many of you guys have, what is he calling you to do because of that? What is he inviting you to do through this passage this evening? Here's the liturgy. We've seen it. It's worked for centuries. What will you do to be family here and now and to extend that to the hurting people who are outside of these four walls. Who in this room do I need to commit to a liturgy with? Who out there do I need to have over for coffee? Do I need to have over for dinner? So we're gonna actually take a moment to just listen to the Holy Spirit because it's one thing, I don't want you to live based on my convictions. I want the Holy Spirit to give you a word, okay? So we just invite you, Holy Spirit, let's go ahead and stand together.